and welcome to the Talking Physio podcast. In this episode, Dr. Christina Eckergren from the School of Public Health and Preventative Medicine, Monash University, chats with Dr. Claire Baldwin, lecturer in physiotherapy, Flinders University, and Dawn Simpson from the Menzies Institute of Medical Research, University of Tasmania, about deconditioning in the acute hospital system and the positive impacts of the End PJ Paralysis campaign. Before we dive in, this episode has been brought to you by the Physiotherapy Research Foundation, supporting the promotion and translation of research and sponsored by Flexies, the exclusive partner of the Physiotherapy Research Foundation. Let's get started. So Claire, we're hearing more and more about the problem of sedentariness in hospitals. I thought we might kick off by just maybe defining what sedentary behaviour is for our listeners. Absolutely. In the literature, we see two components to the definition of sedentary behaviour. One part is the postural component. So it's the time that you're awake that you spend either in a sitting or a lying down position. But it's also a lack of activity, I guess, at a low energy expenditure of less than 1.5 METs. So we have this combination of you know, low energy activities that are conducted in a sitting and lying position. And of course, this is what patients spend most of their time in hospital doing. And we can explore the sorts of problems that that might bring. But we know a lot about the impacts in the general community and the health impacts that sedentary behaviour can have on our health. So Dawn, would you like to tell us a bit more about that perhaps? I do, I guess. I mean, that's one of the things, the health implications of prolonged sedentary time are becoming more understood and certainly have emerged more over the last few years. So we know that prolonged sedentary behaviour is associated with uh, greater all-cause, greater cardiovascular um, disease mortality, which isn't good. And we know that kind of breaking up sitting with light intensity activity actually has health benefits in terms of reducing postprandial glucose, lowering insulin levels, and can actually kind of help waist circumference, BMI, reduce triglycerides in kind of the general population or kind of metabolic populations such as people with diabetes and we also know um, my particular interest is in recovery after stroke and we know that kind of breaking up sitting time after stroke has benefits for stroke survivors in terms of reducing overall systolic blood pressure and obviously that's an important modifiable risk factor after stroke but also an important risk factor for other cardiovascular diseases so the health implications are distinct from just not doing physical activity and I think we're starting to understand that a bit more and understand why it's a problem that we need to tackle when people are in hospital. So your research has looked at the stroke population specifically so I guess we should sort of set the scene by talking about how sedentary stroke patients are in hospital? Sure. Um, Very is the short answer, which is um, unfortunate. In the acute setting, people are spending around 80 to 90% of their waking day in sitting and lying postures. And that's not a new problem that's emerged recently. Julie Bernhardt's seminal work from the early 2000s of patients being inactive and alone really started highlighting the problem. And I think, you know, still today, studies such as our own are showing in the rehabilitation setting about 79% of the day is spent sedentary so we haven't shifted behaviour much over the last 15 years and I think that's why there's a big push now to try and actually start changing behaviour because we need to it's been too long. Did you see that exchange on Twitter yesterday about this issue? 
No, I didn't catch that one. What was that? So it was exactly what you were just talking about. We tweeted about your presentation and someone said, hang on, we've known about this for 15 years. Why haven't these statistics changed? And so people started replying and it was a really interesting thread about some of the reasons for why this hasn't shifted. And a lot of the responses had to do with policies in hospital around falls. And I think maybe we can get into that a little bit more later on. Certainly we see those issues in the acute setting as you've already identified. And from some of the review work we've done, you know, we've had people have studied this in different surgical populations, whether it be cardiac, thoracic, upper abdominal, they've looked at it, you know, in older medical patients coming to medical wards, stroke, respiratory populations as well. And this is a common thread across conditions. So in the acute setting, sometimes we face all these patients are sick and how do acute illness factors come in. But because of what inactivity, sedentary behaviour does to your cardiometabolic health, means that it contributes so much to chronic disease. And what we're seeing in the hospital sense is how we weigh up these acute on chronic issues that many of our patients have part of their disability burden is attributed to their inactivity so they're coming with diabetes heart disease stroke either as a comorbidity or the primary reason why they're presenting to hospital so we are starting to understand more about the patient as a whole and a trajectory and I think it's how we sort of select and perhaps look at their activity history to try and understand where they're at in hospital with this acute illness and then try and change it from there. Maybe the reason it hasn't changed is, you know, we'll talk about it as being a complex and a wicked problem. And even when patients are in the inpatient setting, you don't necessarily see a huge change in their sedentary behaviour or their activity over their hospitalisation. Even though their physical capability or their mobility may improve, you can get this disconnect between, for some patients, around what they're physically capable of doing and the opportunity for what they do and it would be interesting to see how this research progresses and how patients then discharge home and whether they actually are able to respond to increasing their activity and reducing their sedentary behaviour or whether they stay on this low level trajectory and become at risk of representation. So it sits in this wider you know, context of disease burden, chronic disease, acute and how they're moving between our acute and chronic hospital settings. Yeah and I thought we had an interesting question yesterday from the floor which I think we could talk about a little bit more in the light of your research, Claire. What about when patients are sick? Should we be getting them up if they actually need to be sick and lying in bed? Yeah. So my background is actually through intensive care and critical illness. So a huge body of our work and the field is really around early rehabilitation and moving in the intensive care units. So whether that's because we've got, you know, skilled teams and high level monitoring, we kind of go, oh, sickness. Okay. You know, there's still lots of things that we can do. There's actually very few complete red stop signs that say, you know, don't go, that it's not appropriate to mobilise these patients. And so the safety data that's been um, generated over years, the expert consensus recommendations that I had the pleasure of being involved with the colleagues and putting together really sort of set out these parameters to say that perhaps we've been too conservative and we can actually move these patients forward a lot earlier. So yes, there are circumstances where patients are sick and they can get fluctuations in their symptoms and how they feel, but there is still this underlying sense in which early rehabilitation, early mobilisation and the illness factors 
can potentially be addressed. And when people have looked into the barriers and facilitators, an element of it is perhaps healthcare providers, patients and families' attitudes and beliefs. An element is the physiology, but there's also things around team and culture. There's also things around equipment availability and the environment as well. So some of these barriers and enablers may be slightly different because of acute illness in hospital to rehab, but there are elements of the environment and other things that are the same. So maybe this is why it has been so hard to shift and we're seeing the same problems from the work in stroke, but it's actually the same problems that get published in a topical issue 70 years ago in a British Journal of Medicine where Dr Richard Asher said, look at the patient lying in bed, the flesh rotting from his seat, talking about, you know, glute muscles wasting away from being in bed, the spirit evaporating from their soul, the mental health things, and says, teach us to live that we may dread unnecessary time in bed, you know, get people up, we may save patients from an early grave. This is 70 years ago. We don't prescribe bed rest anymore, but maybe we don't prescribe activity. So maybe we're still in this movement and still having this this problem recognised for our patients. Yeah, so let's get into the barriers. Yeah, <laughs> I guess I can kick off in that aspect then. So um, some of my PhD work has been quantitative, looking at activity at different time points after stroke. And we looked at what factors might influence physical activity and sitting time during the transition from hospital to home and found that people were more active in the first week at home than they had been in hospital. And that's not a surprise, but it is a little bit unfortunate and confronting for us as health professionals. That's fantastic data that you've got. (laughs) Very original. And the thing that we found kind of modified that was the presence of depression. So people who had depression spent more time sitting in the first week at home than they had done in hospital. And I think quantitative data takes us so far. So what I was talking about in our seminar yesterday was the qualitative work. I don't think we know enough from the perspective of the actual patients, so in my case stroke survivors and their carers, what their experience of sedentary time has been and what they um, feel about that and need to know more about. So one of the key things that we found was that people didn't have any recollection of having any discussions with health professionals about the problem of sedentary time and very limited understanding of physical activity, thinking about physical activity as the opposite end of the continuum from sedentary time. So I think understanding what the issues are and what the implications for their health and recovery is a significant component and I've certainly heard that discussed in other fields throughout the conference that we've been at currently as well. So I think you know patient understanding and their carer understanding is a big component. Certainly one of the other things that came through quite strongly is unsurprisingly if somebody doesn't have the functional ability to get out of a chair it's very hard for them to reduce their sedentary time and people with more um, significant mobility limitations certainly reported less opportunities to get up and be physically active and I think that feeds into some of the service level barriers and problems that also came through from our thematic analysis in that staff availability is obviously a problem we all know that we're doing the best we can with 
with pretty limited resources. But I think perhaps we can think a bit more cleverly about empowering the patients who have the ability to move to do that independently so that we can target our limited resources towards people who actually need greater support to do that. But picking up on one of your comments from before, Christina, certainly hospital processes around safety and risk um, very strongly came through as potentially promoting sedentary time. So patients did report that they felt that walking activity was discouraged because of fear of falls and the risk associated with that, and not to take away the fact that that is a risk and it can be catastrophic. Certainly, some patients felt that the risk that they had been labelled with didn't meet their perception of their level of risk, and interestingly, their carer's perception of risk as well. Absolutely, and we found the same thing in our interviews we did with older adults on gem wards. So we interviewed patients and their carers, and it was often surprising to hear that It wasn't that patients were unmotivated to walk, which is what the nurses, some of the nurses said, Mm -hmm. but it was they didn't feel that they were allowed to walk. And when we talked to the carers and said, well, do you think that you would feel competent and capable of walking with your wife or your husband? They pretty much all said yes. And they said, well, I'm going to have to do it when we go home anyway, which is only a week away. So why aren't they letting me do it? We've been looking at some work, we're still going through the results, looking at a Delphi study and seeing what um, health professionals, you know, we have got a small patient involvement, um, this is doctors, nurses and a large representation of physios and these are really common threads around um, some of the things around permissions to be able to get up and moving and the group want to have a sort of a bit of a layered and targeted approach for people who need assistance, those who can mobilise independently but then also some generally embedded principles whether that's around policy, staff roles, availability but also staff competence and how we come into training and I see the word encourage come up and encourage patients to be mobile and an interesting um, comment we'd had from one of our participants and the data we're still processing is you know encouragement not seen as bullying and so I think there's something to be said for how that interpersonal approach comes from all health professionals and also looking at roles of families and carers and volunteers because there are different models of health services and cultural perspectives that are really valuable and really important to work through and how you actually engage somebody in being mobile but I'm also interested in is it becomes very individual dependent and it's good to be focused on the patient but this sense of which how much responsibility is really on individuals and health professionals but also recognising that we operate in this complex bigger system where we do have policies where we've got physical environments where hospital bays are set up in particular ways there's lack of meaningful places to walk there's a cognitive engagement to think about and stimulation as well as all those other factors that actually why it's so hard for us to tackle. Mm. And one of the issues we haven't talked about yet is clothing. So some of you might have heard of the End PJ Paralysis global campaign that started in the UK and has spread all over the world. And one of their main targets is to get patients out of bed and dressed out of their pyjamas because everyone knows that, you know, walking around with your bum flapping out in your hospital gown is never a good look. Some patients do it and they don't seem to mind, but I I don't think I would. So the idea with this was that, you know, getting patients to think about the fact that they don't have to wear pyjamas when they're in bed, whether it be hospital gowns or their own pyjamas that they bring in, and that this then not only empowers them to walk but also gets them out of the sick role. 
So if I'm in my PJs all day at home, I know I'm going to feel, you know, pretty crusty by the end of the day. And I think it's a really interesting strategy because it enlists nurses in the remit of hospital mobility, which I think they're less and less seeing as part of their role and more and more giving the responsibility to physios for that. And I think it's a clever strategy because it really sort of gets nurses involved by stealth because clothing is part of their remit. We're all physios here, but from the nursing perspective, there are groups of nurses that are very interested in function-focused care, and some of the studies and approaches we've identified from our literature review work have been around function-focused activities, and dressing is one of those, but we also see opportunities for activity around mealtime, showering, dressing, and I think in the hospital setting, the ability to break up your sedentary time and have opportunities for activity related to self-care are an important strategy because we may sort of you know have patients walking and be able to potentially move to increase their activity in hospital but it does tend to be in concentrated pockets of time such as during a rehabilitation session so it's almost like we need you know multi-pronged approaches in which we yes we think about exercise and rehabilitation time but that really builds into the self-care and how it's more embedded and threaded throughout the day gives the permissions to the patients and that's what they do when they go home they increase their activity because they do need to get up and make meals brush their teeth shower and those sorts of things so the clothing's a really important part in messaging about enabling that I think. One of the other strategies I was really interested that you talked about yesterday, Christina, um, with the implementation work that you were doing at Caulfield was shifting the focus of the mandatory reporting boards. So you talked about um, how on entry to the ward that there were big signs up talking about falls rates and pressure area rates. And one of the strategies you adopted was to actually report back on how many people were dressed by a certain time, how many people had actually been up and walked and mobilised by a certain time and I think one of the key strategies in changing any kind of practice is understanding what's going on in your own individual unit which takes measuring audit processes all of those kind of things can you talk a little bit more about that strategy because that was a very interesting way of not taking away what was already done on the ward but to add to it to shift the focus and the perception of reporting yeah so I think that The reporting is important, but it definitely creates a culture of fear, particularly amongst nursing staff. I think nurses get particularly frightened about falls because maybe they feel that it's not really their area of expertise, hospital mobility, and maybe they feel like if someone falls when they're with them, it's because they did something wrong. So I think in a lot of cases, if nurses see that sort of assist by one status they sort of tend to stay away from that patient and oh no wait wait till the physio gets here and then and then we'll get you up so yeah putting up the data was a way of shifting the focus from the fear of mobility to the goal of mobility and every day someone on the ward counted the number of patients out of the total that were as you said dressed out of bed for lunch and mobilized before two o'clock and every month the statistics would shift and they could see whether they were making progress this was in a background of a series of strategies that were implemented on these wards so they were able to see what worked and what didn't and we had some successes and we had some failures as I spoke about yesterday with those pedometers and I think it 
did two things. First of all, it allowed people to see what the successes and failures were, but it also shifted the focus towards mobility as a positive thing and as something to aspire to and really getting the nurses on board. And in addition to that, the active PAL data that we collected was hugely influential. The numbers were pretty shocking. The average number of steps amongst the patients across the four wards was 388 a day. 97% of the day was spent sitting or lying, so pretty shocking and actually pretty consistent with the published literature. So when everyone heard about that, I think there was a little bit of shock and maybe shame. Not that you want to be shaming people, but it really did motivate people to act. I think that's really consistent with work that's done out of bigger groups like the Johns Hopkins in America. They've got the activity mobility promotion. And there was Michael Friedman was the physiotherapist from there that sat on a panel at the World Physiotherapy Conference uh, this year. And they had a panel on these sorts of issues. And the messaging that came through very much strongly was around, you know, measuring how data is really important part of that process, whether that's with accelerometers, whether it's just doing the behavioural mapping or having a look in just simple numbers that can have a look at how many patients are up, dressed and moving. It's a conversation starter. You can have those conversations on the ward with people and you can do it in a way that, yeah, that is respectful of everyone's role in the team and it's not about shaming. It's about sort of understanding a problem, the magnitude of a problem and then having those small wins where you can see changes and what's working and, and seeing it as a process and valuing their staff time and valuing patients' time as well. Yeah, I think... If anyone is wanting to start their own kind of end PJ paralysis strategy or a mobility strategy on their wards, I think the data collection is the first place to start and then get your team together. Because the other the other issue that I want to pick up on what you said, Dawn, is, is about teams and hospitals are multidisciplinary environments and therefore the solutions need to be multidisciplinary. So the team I worked with at Caulfield consisted of nurses, nurse unit managers, physios, OTs, social workers, gerontologists and also people from management so we had that sort of policy input as well. We also got input from patients and that was really, really interesting and important and the solutions came from the staff themselves. They knew what wouldn't work And so, you know, you save yourself so much time by going straight to the source rather than just overlaying some newfangled idea on these people who are against it from the outset, potentially. And I think the whole overarching behaviour change principles are part of that and the data collection and the kind of naming up the problems, the first component. There is intervention to reduce entry behaviour underway being trialled in the United Kingdom at the moment, being led by a team um, at Leeds. Um, Coralie English from Newcastle University is involved in that programme of work as well. And Dave Clark was out here presenting at the Smarts conference earlier this year and it really is the legwork about naming up the problem and using data to do that but then really working through a co-design process which is what you've just alluded to Christina in terms of you have to talk to everybody you have to get everybody on board and actually having a framework that underpins that which I know you did in your program but potentially you know that could be using the behavior change will principles or the combi framework to actually attach your your ideas and solutions to and actually make sure that we're working through these potential solutions in a really systematic and methodical way that may lead to better sustainability of the behaviour change and, and hopefully better outcomes for our patients. 
Christina, I'm interested in what the environment was like when you came to set this up in the first place. We talked yesterday about you know local barriers need local solutions and you've talked about solutions that worked in your setting when we look at the literature there's a range of other solutions and there may be ones that we haven't thought about but there is this need to operate interpersonally with teams and with the environment and from what I can understand there are some settings and wards that are perhaps ready to change and perhaps others aren't so what did you see in terms of that groundwork that was already in place that was really positive that made you think yes we can move to sort of actually start off the process, if you like? I think actually the environment was pretty negative when we started and it got turned around through the process. So we conducted a survey of all of the nurses at the start of the 12-month intervention and the attitudes to mobility were mostly pretty negative. We don't have time. This isn't our job. And through a series of, I guess, team building activities, I've seen that completely change. One of the most powerful things that they did at Caulfield was a video. They filmed patients, staff, all with these sort of corny signs saying, move it, and set it to a backtrack of the song, move it. And it was just the most joyful, infectious thing you've ever seen. And it went viral. And it made the staff really proud of the work that they were doing. And so now when I go back to the site it feels different and it feels like people are on board with it they still have all the same issues with time and so forth but it's put the issue sort of front and center in their minds so I think that for these interventions to work they need to be fun and they need to bring people joy it can't be a punitive thing like we're telling you what you're doing wrong but here's some fun things that we could try I did also want to pick up on your topic of the environment because I think as hard as you try, if you have a poor environment that doesn't enable physical activity, a deconditioning environment, we might call it, there's a lot of challenges to making change. And I think one of the key things that patients told us is that they just had nowhere to go on the wards. They also felt that the corridors of the hospital weren't their domain. They didn't belong there. That was where the nurses worked and they lived in their rooms. One of the classic comments from a patient was I feel like a prisoner in a prison cell because he felt like he couldn't leave and he wasn't encouraged to leave there was no outdoor spaces no communal spaces some of the gyms were you know pretty depressing places that you might not want to go to and weren't allowed to go to on your own so I think this is a big issue to tackle hospital ward design and you don't do it easily or cheaply But I think that there are some small changes that you can make to hospital wards. And one of those things is just making staff mindful of clutter in the rooms and in the corridors so that patients aren't at risk of falling. And I think also creating some communal spaces. So maybe there's some dusty storeroom that could be converted to a sitting room, a TV room or a library, something like that. And I think these things can really make a big difference to patients feeling that they are allowed and encouraged to leave their rooms. Some of those threads, again, have come through our Delphi. We've got some more objective sort of numerical data, but we've also got this rich bank of comments, and some of that has come up. Um, we'd have therapists in hospitals around the world saying, bring back the communal dining room. So there's obviously lots of different hospital designs around the place, so lots of different ways that it needs to be tackled. Maybe some patients do want to eat together with other patients, and maybe some patients don't like to eat with other people. So I think their voice would, is still going to be really important in strategies moving forward. You do hear 
in terms of the research space, people are looking at things like, you know, more objectively saying what impact a walking track might have. But again, these are still often local solutions to local problems. People have talked about getting theatre companies in to do theatre shows, but they could potentially be quite resource intensive. So you may have this end up having a combination of kind of these more motivational one-off activities that help to sort of encourage people and change the culture but you also have this underlying approach if you're in one part of the world or in one city you know the landmarks and the approach you have to making more enjoyable spaces to be and walk in are related to your city or are related to the profile of your of your patient mix. I believe there's a study in process because I haven't heard much about it. It's only this sneaky line in the bottom of a paper that said that they were developing an art tour around their hospital and scanning QR codes and so you can actually walk around the hospital and get information on, on local art. You know, what a wonderful way that would be to bring in you know, local perspective, different sort of cultural aspects to a hospital and give some stimulation, something for people to do when they're in hospital. On the large research scale at the moment, there's some really exciting work going on at the Florey in this space where they're looking at, you know, how we can optimise healthcare environments. And apologies to the researchers if I slightly misquote uh, what they're doing because I'm talking off the top of my head now. But they're using really um, exciting partnerships with health architects and architecture companies, but also using things like virtual reality to mock up environments that consumers can then spend time in and provide feedback on so you know about the amount of natural light the position of windows the colors involved in hospitals the spaces that they have to move in so that they're going to have this really rich bank of um, data to then kind of work out what works best for certain circumstances and encouraging activity but also supporting rest and sleep which is important and we don't want to take away too much from that as well so yeah there's some very cool big blue sky thinking going on as well and I think it will be very exciting to see the research-based principles that emerge from that and yes it's hard to then implement that into environments that are already built and not very good but we will be able to learn and translate principles and certainly more hospitals new hospitals are getting built these days and surely that gives us better ammunition to get these places designed better in the first place. Absolutely. And I think that bringing together lots of different disciplines is the only way we're going to tackle this problem. It is really complex. And I think that Twitter exchange about why hasn't this changed in 15 years is a lot to do with maybe the approach that we've taken. I don't think a single researcher can go out and fix these problems on wards. The ideas, you know, as we said, have to come from the staff, but, you know, you have to include those architects and building designers and all of those different people. And we need different research approaches as well. So just embedding a single intervention on a ward, which is what we normally do when we do research so that we can evaluate it properly, is not going to work. And the model that we used was the IHI model for healthcare improvement. And I'd encourage anyone to have a look at that because I think it works really well in that you get to try things and if they don't work, you get to try something else. And you just have to make sure that you're collecting data consistently through that time. Other than thinking of a more traditional research paradigm, hospitals would be familiar with safety and quality processes. We've talked about 
about the risk aversion from having falls as an issue, but another way to look at the situation and communicate it is the risk of deconditioning and the negative side effects. And the statistics around how bad that is for you is up there with how bad the other complications that they would be monitoring for hospital accreditation. So if you took the flip side of not falls as a safety and quality problem, but actually the other end is the deconditioning that happens in hospital as being a safety and quality problem because of the complications that brings. You know, maybe that's a way to sort of message and communicate and bring that onto your hospital radar. And if that becomes a target, just like you might look at pressure areas or central line, you know, in hospital acquired infections, because the stats around patient problems and impacts from that are probably quite similar, if not worse, because the deconditioning actually feeds into risks factors for all of those things. That may be a way not necessarily within a research paradigm but within a safety and quality paradigm to sort of build in the importance of that and monitoring and if it's important at that level then it's you've got the bottom-up approach in terms of engaging people teams finding out their problems on the ward but you've also got that top-down support from a safety and quality framework about how you can meet in the middle. Yeah and I think it's about getting people to see falls as a deconditioning problem. In the past I think people have seen the solution to falls as stop them moving but maybe we need to see the solution for falls as get them moving. And interestingly, at our site, there was no increase in falls despite an increase in mobility, and that's consistent with the worldwide data from NPJ paralysis. And in fact, some sites are showing a reduction in falls. So we need to communicate this message about falls risk being pinned to deconditioning. And I think Amelia Crabtree, who is the lead geriatrician at Caulfield, has a great thing that she says is that you might have a 20% risk of falls, but you've got a 100% risk of deconditioning. I think that's a really important statistical kind of key message there about that. Picking up, Claire, on your point about policy, I think that's a really pivotal part of the jigsaw. And I think we've talked a lot this morning about it being such a multifaceted approach. But I think that is a key issue in terms of changing messages and having policy and structures and processes in place. And we've also heard quite a lot about advocacy, um, I guess, across the conference these last few days as well. And I think as physiotherapists, that's possibly where we need to step up more in that space as well. We're doing the research, we're doing the clinical side of things, but we need to communicate the problems really quite clearly and actually get that as a policy agenda. And I'm not sure how we do that exactly, but I think it's one of the most important things that we need to do. Yeah, I think we need to talk to our individual hospital falls risk groups because often they're really setting the agenda and we've certainly found that at Caulfield. They don't want to see an increase in falls. That's their main priority. So you've got to work with them to reframe the conversation. I think that about wraps it up. We've probably got sessions that we need to move on to now. So thank you so much for chatting this morning, ladies. It's been fantastic to find out more about our research and um, ideas for the future. Thanks, Dawn. Thanks, Claire. Thank you both. That was Dr. Christina Eckergren from Monash University, Dr. Claire Baldwin from Flinders University and Dawn Simpson from the University of Tasmania. And you've been listening to another episode of Talking Physio, brought to you by the Physiotherapy Research Foundation and Flexies. Thanks for listening and make sure you catch the next episode of the Talking Physio podcast. Oh.